Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. All right, everyone, welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. We're so excited to be here with you today. How are you, Dr. Starlin? I am doing great, Sarah. Yourself? I am not too bad. I am um, I'm glad to have the opportunity to do this podcast today. It's taking my mind off of some of my other workload that's a little bit, it's been a little crazy lately. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. The last couple of weeks have uh, definitely been trying, I will say, for uh, work-wise and then maybe a few other things going on as well. But I don't know, what. when did we go back to this heat too? It's like we moved to Florida or something. It's crazy. It is a little, a little crazy. They say that global warming is not a thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's global humidity is what it is right now, I think. Something. Well, um, we are so what's very, going on today? Yeah, we're very excited to have our special guest on today. It's Dr. Dan Berlita. And um, Dr. Starlin, I know you know him a little bit better than I do. Would you like to introduce him? Certainly, certainly. Yes, we are certainly excited to have Dr. Berlita join us today. He actually just joined the Nebraska Medicine UNMC uh, Division of Infectious Diseases about seven months ago or so, I think, is when he started. Um, He's now an Omaha resident um, after moving in here from central Nebraska and joining our community ID service, as well as taking a major role with ICAP, and many of you have probably heard him speak on the webinars, and uh, he's actually vital in setting those up and getting the speakers and and working with the the nursing team on making sure that those are educational for everybody. So welcome, Dan. Glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited to to be here. Yeah, that's uh, that's exciting to have this type of of, uh, webinar. Yeah, like you said, you know, it's uh, something new gets you out of your routine, but still, still uh, gets you to talk about what you like, I guess. Would you like to tell us a little bit about where you're from and your path to where you are currently? Hey, sure. Yeah, I. So I'm from Romania, which is in you know Eastern Europe, and. Um, I graduated uh, from medical school there, and then I moved to United States many years ago. I lost count, <laughs> but but anyway, I I uh, did uh, internal medicine and infectious disease um, in Texas, and um, then I moved to Nebraska about it's been about 15 years ago, um, and I've been you know, practicing in central Nebraska area, western Nebraska, uh, since 2007 or so. And so I really, I got to to know um, a lot of the community hospitals and, you know, we we set up some uh, infectious disease collaboration with UNMC at that point. And, um, you know, I think UNMC is one of the one of the first universities in the country that recognized the need to expand the reach, you know, kind of like with the community infectious disease service 
uh, bringing kind of like academic, you know, like uh, academic level expertise, but reaching to the community needs, especially on, you know, in a state like ours, you know, where most of the specialty expertise is, is East, um, there is still a, a lot of need for patient care in Alt West. So when uh, Dr. Starlin, uh, you know, spearheaded this community ID service here, at UNMC, I was very interested and, you know, I, I had the, the chance and the great opportunity to, you know, eventually be able to join the project. So here I am. Yes, and we're super glad that you're here. Uh, happy to have you. I actually was answering a message from a pharmacist at your old hospital before, <laughs> since I'm covering there today. Um, I'd be interested uh, to hear kind of uh, in your words, uh, what you see the community ID service as kind of serve, what role does it serve and, and, and how can we uh, hope that it, it grows to serve our region, area, state, et cetera, going forward? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think, first of all, I think it's, it's a great initiative. I think, you know, many, uh, many states can actually use our model, um, you know, kind of like uh, expand the reach of um, expertise of, you know, university medical center and, you know, everything that's associated with that, you know, whether it's, whether it's pharmacy, you know, social services, all the projects that, that we've, you know, we have going, you know, with outpatient therapy, with uh, infection control and prevention practices, and then just kind of like share the, the knowledge with, um, you know, all the communities that, that need, you know, infectious disease expertise. So, so from my standpoint, uh, you know, when I came to Nebraska, like, you know, like I said, in 2007, I found an area that was pretty much, you know, void of infectious disease expertise. Uh, anything that was west of Lincoln was managed either remotely or, you know, as you know, you know, with physicians coming from Lincoln or Omaha. Um, and so, so basically there are many patients that are in need of, of this type of services. And that's where I think the community idea at UNMC now is, is reaching, you know, we basically offer this type of expertise in uh, several areas, you know, in, you know, in the state to meet, you know, kind of like, uh, not only uh, critical access where we share our infection prevention, you know, expertise and remote knowledge, but also providing direct services to uh, certain hospitals, uh, kind of like medium-sized hospitals that still see a fair share of critically ill patients and they definitely need the services. So I think community ID combined with telehealth, which is a new project of ours, right, this year, you know, is, is very useful for the state of Nebraska. And I think um, it's going to be useful as a model for other states going forward. So for our listeners that don't know, the Western half of Nebraska is very sparsely populated. So um, as, as an infectious disease physician at West where you didn't have, you know, maybe the ability to get to some physical locations. How did you manage your, your rural area? Yeah, I mean, I, when, I, when I joined, you know, the, I did not really have um, the intention to just stay uh, in, 
basically physically in the clinic or in the hospital. You know, we, we had a plan to basically share the expertise with other communities. So if you put all those communities together and, and you realize some of our hospitals reach as far you know, south as Kansas or as far west as you know, some parts of Colorado and stuff like that, then, then you start seeing a stream of patients for them, it's it's actually easier to come to Nebraska to get care than to go to, you know, Wichita or or something like that. So so there is a fair number of patients, although the communities, you know, don't seem to be as um, you know as populous as Lincoln and, and Omaha. But there is there is a need, you know. So so that's what we did. You know, we we took it on the road. You know, we, you know, we went. You know, to ask the hospitals what. What are your needs? You know, Rick. You know, I think Rick. Uh, you know, Dr. Stalin. You know, did uh, did some similar things to you know with with uh, the practice uh, at that point. And um, we did try to offer telehealth. Um, it was a different type of telehealth at that point. But the good thing about Nebraska, they always had the infrastructure to do telehealth. It wasn't you know the same video you know type of. Uh, fast and digital connection that we have now, but we always had all the critical access hospitals on a, on a network and then they could do you know, telehealth. So that was helpful. Even in 2007, if you would have a patient in the middle of the winter and he would be in North Platte or somewhere, you know, North Platte currently has an infectious disease physician, but you know, there was nobody there in 2007. And you could just go on a camera and try to provide the best service that you can by camera at, at that point. So that's how we started, you know. So then, you know, obviously we we tried to provide services in central Nebraska, like I said, western Nebraska, and um, I guess the northern part of Kansas uh, came after that. And um, we we always had the you know this excellent cooperation, I'd say, with, with the university. Even when the university did not have a formal community ID program, they were always willing to help the smaller communities. And, and I think that's, that's what we do in Nebraska. We take care of each other, so. I think that's yeah, a very I, Midwest quality, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely a, a, a good. Um, yeah, all the leveraging this technology in order to be able to reach more people, I think is critical going forward. And hopefully there's still support for this after the pandemic is over. As you know, a lot of this has been done for pandemic purposes because it was hard to get in to see everybody, et cetera. Um, but now hopefully going forward, we can continue to leverage what we've learned and see that this is an effective way to provide subspecialty care to areas that maybe wouldn't support having that provider there each and every day. So um, you spent a lot of time on the road while you were out there, right? Yep, absolutely. So what is your favorite road food? My favorite ro road food? <laughs> Coffee. Coffee, that's a good one. I'm not a good eater of the road. <laughs> it's one of our dirty drinks, coffee. That's right. I think it, it's Sarah's drink, but not mine. I don't drink coffee, so. Yeah. I don't understand how anyone can live without it. We have to get caffeine some way. It just doesn't have to be hot. Well, yeah, you know, you, know you, go, you go on the road, you know, you go, you see those, uh, those um, you know, 
hills and everything else, you know, Western Nebraska and stuff. And you, you do have some favorite places where you stop or you always stop, you know, you, you stop in that town that has one hospital and, you know, one good subway and everybody knows you there. You know, they, they know, they know you, they even know you're coming the second Tuesday of the month. <laughs> so. Yeah, I grew up in a small town. It's amazing how things get around that quickly. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Um, one thing that you bring to us that I was super excited for you to join us is you have a different experience than most anybody here at uh, Nebraska Medicine and UNFC in the fact that you've been essentially a solo practitioner for years in a, a largely underserved area as far as subspecialties go. And so I think a lot of our listeners might be learners or, or uh, you know, trainees that are looking at jobs. And so a lot of those jobs might be in places like that. So how do you feel that you were, um, did you get the support that you need? Could you reach out? Because you didn't have any colleagues to bounce cases off like we do here. I could walk two stores, two doors down and ask you a question. Whereas in Hastings, you wouldn't have been able to do that. So it's a unique experience that I think you can offer to all of our learners and trainees here at UNMC. Yeah, I, it, it's a it's a very good question. I first of all, I I don't think you should uh, you should try to practice alone. I do think you should have your, you know, if your buddies, your mentors, your people that you trust the most, and you know, all, all those years, I if I had if I had a question, you know, some sort of uncertainty or something like that, I still try to reach to to people that were. Uh, either my mentors in the past or, you know, people that I respected the most at the university. I mean, I haven't had any single, you know, instance where I had like a complicated HIV case, let's say, and, and I called over and I couldn't get uh, get hold of, of Dr. Swindells or, you know, somebody like an expert in that clinic. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I feel like even when, when the university did not have a formal program, uh, they still had some some really good grants to help you know the people and and the facilities in Western and Central Nebraska in terms of antimicrobial stewardship and infection prevention, and working with them on you know on that front actually kept us in the loop you know being able to talk with you know with experts in the field so. So that was that was something that I always tried to do, you know, to something. I, I never considered myself like I cannot fail or I know everything. You know, that's not possible. You know, that's you have to you have to realize that you you do better in a network. So, um, you know, and and the geographical distance nowadays, you know, you can easily overcome that if you know we have more ways to communicate with each other, and. That's how that's how I did it. That's that's how I tried. And plus, it's important to to remember, even if you are in in a location that looks like it's remote, and you know you're a solo practitioner. Um, if you go to the national conferences, if you try to try to keep up to date, you know it it really serves you and your patients and. It's not wasted time. You know, you have to keep learning. You have to be a learner for life, basically. That's what I have to say about my experience. 
Probably and, not the same as being as being uh, you know uh, one door down from the expert. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, now you can just hop on Twitter or text them, right? And it's just yeah. like being next door. Yeah, I've always been a really big fan of the lifelong learner model in in anything that I'm doing. So I think that's really good advice for anybody out there that's listening. Um, I know that you have a bit of a background in tuberculosis as a specialty. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you did with that? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I guess uh, where I trained and, you know, even where I came from, you know, you see a lot more tuberculosis than what you typically see in the Midwest. Um, but tuberculosis is is something that interested me because it's not only a medical disease, but it's also kind of like socially and culturally challenging. And so it's kind of like the, the crossroads of, you know, being a good infectious disease physician, but also kind of like a, a person that's aware of, you know, where you can make a difference in the society in general. I mean, I don't know how, how to say, say it more. You're not very successful as a, as a tuberculosis controller or anything like that, if you just uh, if you just prescribe medications or anything like that, there are other barriers that need to uh, need, need to be considered. And so, yeah, and then you learn a, a lot of a lot of things when you when you actually get to see and get to relive experiences, you know, about that. So, thankfully. In United States, we've been doing better and better, you know, for a few years, you know, with tuberculosis. Um, but still, there is a there is a battle to be won there. So I, like I said, I trained in Texas. In Texas, at any given time during the fellowship, you know, you could go on the floor and find five people, you know, in airborne isolation for good reasons, you know, having active TB, you know. So, um, I mean, in fact, if you go to some big cities there, they have their own tuberculosis department, which is as big as the, or, or three times bigger than state departments in other, in other states. So, so you can see a lot of tuberculosis. Um, and then I had the chance to, when I came to Nebraska, you know, the, our tuberculosis controller at that point, you know, the state's uh, TB nurse, uh, recognized the fact that there is no, basically no meaningful expertise, you know, east of, I mean, west of Lincoln, because the cases are so rare, you know, by the time you see a case, it's probably the only one that you, you have seen in your nurse or even physician career. And so they're frequently, they're mismanaged, you know. So since I was in that area, I think that was, that was what, she, you know, she, why she reached to me, you know, maybe to bring more expertise to the state TB program. And so I joined around 2007, 2008. And, and I've been, you know, state representative for tuberculosis in some um, some medical committees, including the regional training center that CDC uh, sponsors, which is called Heartland National TB, and it's in San Antonio or Tyler, Texas. And so I tried to go, you know, to you know attend those meetings, kind of like further my knowledge in TB and you know, being aware that most of the cases in, in Nebraska are still in Eastern Nebraska, but I, I've still, I've still been able to, to keep my TB 
you know, skills, I, I believe. And I've seen some really interesting things, <laughs> you know, in, in Nebraska. So we have to be ready. You know, we have to be ready for those. And it takes, like I said, it takes kind of like a constant learning type of approach. Yeah, back it's... to the constant learning approach, which I think is a, a theme for um, all of uh, all of this in medicine and life in general. So that's great. You mentioned that you've seen some interesting things with TV. Why don't you share some of what you've seen that, uh, that people would uh, maybe uh, learn something from? We think of TV as just being a lung disease, right? I mean, everybody's yeah. watched uh, Doc yeah. Holliday cough up some blood in, uh, in, in the movie or something and learn right. that tuberculosis, but it's a heck of a lot more than that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, you, you look at some of the state numbers from just from a few years ago, and, and you look at that, and what's, what's striking is why do we have so much extra pulmonary TB? Um, so, I mean, we don't have a huge number of cases in Nebraska, right? We have, you know, our cases are few, you know, a few dozens there, you know, every year, you know, it kind of goes up and down, but you, we have a very high percentage of extra pulmonary TB, and which is probably much more than what we've, we've seen in our training, right? I mean, I don't know, you know, when, you know, what, what you've seen, Rick, but I, I wasn't used, like you said, you know, with so much extra pulmonary, I've seen mostly pulmonary TB. But now, you know, we see, you know, uh, not even that much genitourinary TB, but we, we see a lot of bone and joint TB. We see brain TB, you know, all those, all those things. And um, yeah, I, I was sharing with, uh, with a group here at Nebraska Meds, you know, some uh, some cases that I believe you know have no proof of pulmonary TB, but have clear proof of destructive bone TB and maybe maybe cerebral TB at the same time. You know, so so that's something that I haven't seen in 20 years. You know, so it's uh, it's always something new. Yeah, you definitely brought some interesting cases with you. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, I. I'm really interested to hear about the different types of TB. Um, with my past clinical experience working in a dental facility, our TB management plan is usually just not to see them. <laughs> um, you know, usually dentistry is an elective procedure, so you know we don't need to have that exposure. I don't disagree with you. <laughs> so, so it's uh, yeah, it, as long as it's uh, elective, you know, yeah. You should wait, for sure. So um, you said you, you were talking a little bit about bone and joint TB and cerebral TB. I've never heard of those before. Can you elaborate a little bit? I guess I've only ever heard of pulmonary TB, you know, like right. just like Dr. Starlin said, watching the movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you can if you can imagine that, you know, we don't really do like blood cultures, you know, for tuberculosis that much, right? But uh, if you can imagine that tuberculosis is disseminating a little bit in the body, right? And it just, it just goes to other body organs. I mean, most of the times the port of entry is pulmonary and that's where we fight it. But sometimes it's just not where we find it. <laughs> you know, sometimes we find it uh, kind of like a, a remote disseminated form of tuberculosis. Um, you know, meningitis is, is fairly frequent with tuberculosis. It's just a different type of meningitis than what 
the what we'll be used with. And then the bone and joint DB is, you know, it could, could destroy a bone, you know, for sure. And then uh, it's not that unusual to see lymph nodes DB with draining lymph nodes and um, that you see that from time to time. And so Very interesting. Just, yeah. That makes sense. But in this day and age, most of the patients that have tuberculosis, you're able to find an effective regimen to treat them, correct? And there are actually some new drugs that have come out and maybe some new therapies in the pipeline as well that uh, look promising, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, when uh, you have to start, uh, start using those to get like a little more confident because obviously when, when you have a new drug on the market like bedaculin, you know, and stuff like that, that you only reserve for severe resistant cases, you know, you're a little, you're a little afraid, you know, how, how is this going to go? You know, I, I heard it has, it can prolong the heart intervals and stuff like that. But um, no, I mean, we have, uh, I think the, the battle now is to shorten the therapy, you know, for, for the cases. And, you know, that basically solves many problems because the, you know, people are more compliant and, and they finish therapy and they, they don't become resistant so easily. So that's the battle with latent TB and with active TB. Nobody likes to be on treatment for tuberculosis for nine months, right? So, so there's good evidence that we can shorten, you know, many cases to four months. And so hopefully we'll move forward with that. Right, and the multi-drug resistant TB, I mean, you were talking 18 to 20 months of therapy in the past and some new guidance has wow. come out that you can cut that pretty much in half, right? With some of our new therapies. Right, right. Yeah, you have to, you have to imagine those old TB hospitals and, and actually going to Heartland National TB, you can see one of the last TB hospitals in the nation, right, in, in Tyler. Uh, people are there not because they want to be there, but because they developed a very resistant form of TB and they might even be under a, you know, health directive to, you know, to be isolated for a while. And gosh, they can spend a year plus in that facility taking, you know, some therapies for multi-drug resistant or XDR-TB. And so that's hopefully something that we can, <laughs> we can do away with. Yeah, so I can tell you've got a lot of passion for tuberculosis. So, I mean, I, I assume that you would be interested if there are patients in the state or region that uh, need help, that you'd be glad to see them and, and help get them appropriate care and work with their local docs on uh, moving forward. Absolutely. I, I, as we've seen, you know, with, with other services, ID, I think it's very, it's, it's very appropriate for doing, you know, telehealth uh, if the patient cannot come to you. There are some patients that you need to see in person, but in general, ID can do a lot of things by telehealth. And tuberculosis is a great example. Um, there are states where, you know, even the TB nurses rely a lot on telehealth now for directly observed therapy, BOT, because they can't reach to all areas of Arizona and New Mexico, and, you know, Utah. And so they've, they've been using telehealth just to make sure DOT is, is getting done right. So, yeah. And TB is not my only my only passion, but you know I guess it's the one that I get to to ask. <laughs> I get asked to, to speak about more, but yeah. Well, I what's like. your other passion then? 
My, my other passion is, you know, blending a little bit like community infectious diseases with, uh, with a little bit of kind of like um, academic background, you know, so, so like providing good care, like bringing academic, you know, type of care in, into a community. So, um, so I think, you know, we basically serve people that want to stay uh, in their local hospital, right? And uh, they, they go to, to the big hospital only if there is something that needs to be done at the big hospital. And, and frequently there is, and, in, and then we provide care for them there. But if they have a problem and they can be managed at their local hospital, but they still need like an, an expert to look over their treatment, um, we can do that for them. And then they feel, they feel like if they get cared for by the family or, you know, the, you know how it goes, you know, because you're from a small town, right? You know, you feel very comfortable being, you know, cared for by the nurses that you know, by the, by the physicians that you know, even though that means that maybe, maybe the, the small town knows about you, you know, but, but you still feel more comfortable about it. So, and that's, you know, I think that's what we try to help with. But, but keeping, you know, always keeping like a, an academic standard, you know, doing things, you know, the right, the right way. Yeah. That's great. My, my other my other passion when I was uh, in Texas, I was doing a lot more of that. Was was basically fungal infections. <laughs> so, San Antonio. So you're fungal. a fun guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad ID joke, right? It, yeah. That is. That was terrible. I'm sorry, everybody. Yeah. So. Um, one thing I'm curious about is, is uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you're from abroad and you arrive in the United States and you start working in our healthcare system. What was your initial reaction to, I'm in the US, I'm working in these hospitals and boy, is this a mess or this is awesome or, or what, what did you think? Yeah, I, you know, I think overall, you know, the, the impression was, boy, this is awesome, you know. There, there are things that are different for sure. Um, you can get very, very good, you know, training overseas for sure. Uh, you don't necessarily get access to all the technology that's available here and all, all the expertise. Um, but we, I think, I think international medical graduates bring some, some strengths to the United States healthcare system. And, um, you know, we, we may have different experiences. There are some things that, you know, you definitely, it just makes your, your life easier. Like you don't have to care about some crazy things happening, you know, in, in other healthcare systems, which I will not name. <laughs> but uh, um, if there is something that, that's a little, I don't know, it, it's a little hard to understand, in the beginning is, is probably the healthcare resource utilization, utilization, which is, it seems high, you know? <laughs> so, and I, I think there's a lot of controversy about that. <laughs> so. so one thing we ask all of our guests is, what is the craziest thing that you have seen clinically? Um, I've seen, 
I don't know. I mean, I have some fav favorite things that I've seen in my career, but one that I guess impressed me the most because I was like, uh, this was actually my second day as a fellow at, uh, you know, my infectious disease, you know, program was that I've seen somebody who got a terrible infection after being hit by a tornado a year prior. Wow. So, uh, you know, basically a, a neurologic uh, fungal infection after basically being hit by a tornado and having, you know, debris um, embedded in her skin all over the place and developing initial, initially a fungal infection of the skin, which then kind of like percolated all the way to the, to the spine and the nervous system. So I, I still, I, I'm still, I still remember that. It's one of the craziest things that I've seen. So. That's and interesting. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Did, uh, did it not have a good outcome? Uh, not really, but I don't know the, the final outcome because I graduated, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, like I said, you know, barriers in healthcare, you know, antifungal medications are really expensive and, Sometimes people don't take expensive drugs very well, especially when you tell them that they need to take for one year or longer. So, so yeah, that's that's where you have to think twice, you know, before you just prescribe something and let them go and with the three months follow up, you know. So I think hopefully the outcome was eventually good, but. Yeah, that's a complicated infection. <laughs> yeah, sound, certainly sounds uh, super complicated. Thanks for sharing that story. Um, for some of our young listeners and everything else, if they're thinking about going into medicine or going into ID, what do you, uh, what advice would you tell them? What do you see as the future of infectious disease going forward? Obviously, I think the pandemic has shown that having more people in infectious disease or infection prevention or public health is vital. So clearly, it seems to be that there are going to be careers in this field going forward. Yeah, I, I think, uh, like, like you said, you know, I think the, the field has, uh, um, has good future. I, I just think it's going to be different, you know, several years from now, just because of all the, all the things going on with the, you know, genomic medicine and, you know, the, all the, the testing that we do at molecular level, I think you'll have to be skilled in, in a lot of things that have to do with uh, basically genomic research and stuff a little bit. But um, I, I think that this field will be strong. I would just tell whoever wants to, um, to go in infectious disease, infectious disease is, is a passion and you, you don't do it because you're going to be you know, like super rich from it, you know, like, uh, you know, one of one of other medical specialties that you might think of, but you do it because it's really interesting and it's really challenging and, and it, it keeps you, it keeps you kind of like wanting to do it and it is not system specific and, and you enjoy it. And that's what we, we offer in the field. I would say it keeps you up at night because you have so many things that you feel like you need to be thinking of or, or trying to, to help your patients and figure out that I do everything I could for each of these people every day. And 
Uh -huh. The unknowns drive you crazy, don't they? Yeah. What do you think? What 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 do you think? It's what what's keeping what's keeping you you know mostly entertained after you know all those years. Yeah. Um, make me sound like I'm really old. Um, no, I just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just completely kidding. Um, no, I mean I think it's the um, for me again it's the it's the things that you said it's the breadth of infectious disease it's not there's not one thing that you're doing repetitively all the time now we do have things that we see more frequently than others that there's no lie about that but um, but but there's so many different uh, systems and aspects to this especially if things have become more specialized and as as medicine has grown and we're doing more things to patients in terms of their therapies, we're giving them, people are more immune suppressed than they've ever been. There's more devices put in people than there's ever been. Um, people are doing much better as far as outcomes from heart attacks and heart failure and all these other things. So we're seeing more infections in those posts that otherwise would not have uh, been around to get those infections. So as our care for other things have improved, I mean, there's still infections. There's always infections. Um, and so it's evolved. And as you know, I mean, you do a lot of, uh, of TB disease. I do a lot of non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease, which is a massively growing field. And so one of the things that makes me excited is, is the ability to grow uh, our, our clinic in that and our care of people in something that's really growing in terms of numbers of cases and complexity of cases and, and everything else. In addition to growing with you, the community and telehealth outreach that we have here. So I think there's so much opportunity in these fields for people. We've had, we've had a data analyst on our show who was in marketing before he joined ICAP. And, and here he is making a huge difference during the middle of a pandemic. And he has absolutely no medical background. So I think there's lots of things that we can do in healthcare and in ID and infection prevention going forward that can make uh, the world a better place. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, um, my big passion project is really trying to build up better guidance for infection control and dentistry. There's just a not a whole lot of guidance out there. So I'm always pushing people to do better than what the state standard says. Um, it's kind of like the wild west of medicine. I, I, I mean, I, you're part of ICAP. I, I think ICAP, ICAP has been great. I mean, great help for for the state and in, in so many directions, you know, you, you mentioned dental and, and ICAP has so many projects going on, you know, helping, you know, long-term facilities through this COVID pandemic and acute care facilities and dialysis and everything. So yeah, you can, you can talk about that, but it, I think, I think that was a, that was a great model of cooperation you know, with, with all the facilities in the state when, you know, in our, in our darkest hour, you know, with, with the COVID taking over the state. So I'm really proud of ICAP. Yeah, as I'm, it's been... As I'm, sure, as I'm sure the ICAP leaders are, so, yeah. It's been a, a crazy, crazy year, but definitely worth it to help that many people. 
Yeah, you had to jump right into an, a big role in ICAP right in the middle of the pandemic as things were going on and, uh, and we'd already been doing things for a while when you transitioned over here. So you took on the role of leading the acute care webinar as well as being one of my co-medical directors on the acute care uh, side of things. So uh, what, what, what does that exactly mean? What is ICAP and what is the webinar doing and, and kind of your purpose of that? And where do you see that going to try to help our facilities throughout the state and region? Yeah, I mean, I, the infection control uh, and uh, for the acute care webinar, basically we try, we try to have this call uh, two times a month uh, uh, it's called, you know, the acute care facilities and outpatient facilities webinar, where we basically try to connect with facilities in the states and bring what's what's new and useful in terms of where we are with COVID, and we hopefully will transition at some point to other topics. But really, for the last several months, you know, most of our our webinars were centered around the COVID, you know, developments and various things connected to, to that. Um, and that was for acute care facilities, mostly. Uh, we do have, you know, like, at, as you know, at ICAP, we have another specific webinar for long-term, you know, facilities and, and some other webinars for dental and dialysis. But for acute care, you know, we basically give the COVID updates. That is basically where, where we... Uh, really benefit from the expertise of uh, the um, Dr. Donahue and Dr. Antoine, you know, the um, chief medical officer for the state and the state epidemiologist. They almost always are on our call, you know, sharing important data and where we are so that everybody can see and take, you know, appropriate uh, actions. And then we discuss whatever is new. We, we bring data, we bring our uh, experts, whether it's uh, some sort of pharmacologic intervention that we talk about, or you know, some infection prevention policy, employee health, you know, data that you you presented, um, you know, and, and then we have various speakers. Like today, we we had uh, we had a very good talk about really how to cope with the situation, you know, during the the COVID pandemic, you know, how to. How to not get completely burned out by the situation? We we try to we try to offer various topics and anything that is of interest or could be useful to those facilities, we try to facilitate. So. Yeah, and those webinars are open for anybody to attend. So if there are any listeners out there, even though they are Nebraska specific, there are a lot of topics that could be transitioned to any area. So I will put the webinar info into the show notes for our listeners out there. One last thing that I want to ask you is that I know you have another passion and that's nothing to do with medicine, but it has to do with swimming. So yeah. how did this come about? Where did it start? And I know you have a, so, you know, some good swimmers in your family. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I had the five-year-old daughter that was like, trying to swim through the waves at the local YMCA and, and the coach basically asked her to join the team and then she she swam for you know 13 more years after that at, at uh, various levels you know state level and regional level and 
that was a wonderful experience. You know, she she had so many friends and, uh, um, you know, and we went to cool places, you know, for those. But, you know, I, I can't really wait four hours doing nothing to watch four minutes of swim because that's how swim meets go. You basically, you, you basically will see will see your kids swimming for about four minutes in four hours, and so so I started helping, you know, initially on the computer side, and then I started officiating, and so I really enjoyed it, you know. I I, uh, I I'm nationally certified now, and I still help, you know. I what you know, and, and in that uh, in that sense. With the first COVID wave, obviously we had to make sure nothing nothing gets done. You know, even in the sports world, right? They would uh, they would bring more COVID into the community. So we had basically no swimming, you know, right? But the first time when when we we tried to put a new swim meet in the state, it was in the area where where I was because I came and and said, you know, if you really want to try try to do a meet, I'll try to help you. I'll try to help you do it in a safe way. And, and hopefully, you know, we will we'll prove that we can do it. So that was a very small meet done with very safe precautions. As you know, we will have other, other people in the division that have been advisors to the highest level of the Olympic committee and, and stuff like that. And, you know, you, you, you need to, you need to try to give, give guidance to the community and try to help the community sometimes uh, to be safe because it's not like, you know, getting a lot of people around for a, for a sports event is safe, you know, nowadays. So I try to do a little bit of that. And, you know, I, that's, that's my other, my other uh, passion, like you said, you know, helping with swim meets, which, Hopefully, at some point, we'll we'll start doing those as we used to. Yeah, but That's now super I super awesome. Yeah, my my five year old kid is now going to UNL and possibly walking on to the team. So, so I'm yeah. I, I feel pretty exciting. That's yeah. really exciting. That's uh, that's that's awesome. Great story. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I have one more question for you, Dr. Berlita, if you don't mind. Oh. What are you reading or watching right now? Do you have any I, shows or books or anything that you're? So I'm not. I'm not really such a. I I don't watch a lot of shows. You know, like it seems like every time when when I'm around the TV, you know, my kids, you know, try to watch Office or something. So <laughs> so I do know some things, but I, I I don't do very well with shows. I don't know much in the world of shows around me, you know. So if I watch TV, it's it's pretty rare that I watch TV. And it's mostly sports events, really. You know, I I do know the news and stuff, but uh, yeah, what I enjoy. What I enjoy reading is um, currently is more like like uh, science and history, basically. So I I used to have different reading patterns when I was younger, but right now I'm I'm kind of like looking back and and think that history repeats itself sometimes. So I'm interested in that in that type of books. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, awesome. 
you have any questions for us otherwise uh, before we sign off? How did you come with, with this idea? This is a really cool idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was all Dr. Starlin's idea. I had an idea of uh, just talking to um, healthcare providers, especially to start off people in infectious disease and infection prevention, um, just to try to get a sense of who, who people are, why they're doing what they're doing, and, and get the word out just about all these people that work behind the scenes. Most of the time when there's not a pandemic, most people in the world don't know who these people are. Um, but, uh, and I'd like to include public health in there too, as soon as we can uh, get somebody signed up. Um, they do vital things in our healthcare system and our society, um, but they're largely anonymous. Um, obviously a lot more of us have been on the media and, and everything else since the pandemic started. But at the end of the day, you know, what makes us tick? Why do we do what we do? What interests us? And, and try to get it out there so that uh, people can see all of that, as well as hopefully get some young people interested in doing this. Uh, it's, um, it's not glamorous, as you've said. You're not going to be wealthy in terms of money, but you can have a lot of wealth in terms of knowing that you've made a difference and you've uh, changed uh, things and protected a lot of people. Maybe you can't put your finger on one, but changing a policy or a procedure or doing something that's in the name of patient safety goes a long ways. And those are things that a lot of us do each and every day. And, and I just wanted to make sure that it, uh, it, people could hear that. Now, I didn't know how to do it. I just had the idea that we could sit down and talk to people like yourself and then Sarah had some kind of an idea for doing, recording something or whatever. So I just pitched it to the ICAP team one day and actually pitched it to ASHRAP a few months ago, but uh, I didn't know how to go anywhere. So I, I was just like, whatever. And then we talked about it one day and Sarah's like, I want to do it. And, and I was like, okay. So all the technology, all the editing, all the scheduling, Everything else, Sarah is the master of that. I just show up and talk to people. So I got the best job in the world <laughs> right now. And so I'm not going to complain, but that's where it came from. Yeah, it is. Well, it's been, it's been a fun ride so far and we're hoping that it continues on for a very long time. Well, I'm glad you, you think it's you, you had a great idea. <laughs> so I think I, yeah, I enjoyed Talking to you for sure. Yeah, well, it was great getting to know you more and letting our, uh, our listeners get to know you a little more. And if they have anybody that has tuberculosis, they know where to go. If they have, uh, you know, things in their community where they're thinking, hey, I could maybe use some ID coverage, uh, you know, that can reach out. Otherwise, if they decide to have a swim meet in their backyard, we, we know somebody that can uh, referee that for you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Berlita, for joining us today. And thank you to all of our listeners. Um, feel free to give us a follow and a five-star rating if you're so inclined. And we will catch you on the next episode of Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy Dirty Drinks.